Data stories number 40. Hi, Enrico. How are you doing? Hey, Moritz. I'm doing great. Yeah? Uh, How was your gone. summer? Did you have some vacations? Summer was, was awesome. Uh, we we spent some time in Florida mm-hmm. doing, uh, you know what? Nothing. All the day. <laughs> just, just going, yeah, from, from our apartment to the beach and from the beach to our apartment. Nothing really special. Just <laughs> uh, In Italian, we say dolce far niente. Okay. Which means doing nothing, sweet uh-huh. doing nothing. Sweet, sweet doing nothing, yeah. Yeah. Very nice. And how about you? Yeah, same. I had some vacations too. We went to Bavaria. Uh, mm-hmm. So we stayed with uh, my parents and Sina's mother. So they took care of the kids and we could like do our oh, thing, yeah, which yeah. is which is yeah. also a good form of vacations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And one week of working a bit on the house and planning a terrace, things like that, so... Cool. And now I'm back in the office, had a full week of calls. I'm, I'm a bit tired of talking, actually. <laughs> don't don't tell so, me. It's yeah. been crazy for me since and when I'm there's, back. There's so many things where I said, yeah, we'll totally do that in September. And now I'm totally in September. And I totally <laughs> yeah. have to do all these things. And yeah. Yeah. But it's crazy. crazy I, like, I like work, as you know, so I should complain. Yeah. yeah. Same here. No. Should we start? Absolutely. So we have another special guest, special, special guest today. It's my pleasure to have here uh, Jessica Hallman from... uh, Jessica, right now you are at University of Berkeley, right? Yes, correct. Um, California Berkeley. University California California. Berkeley. (laughs) So Jessica is a a researcher in information visualization. And um, we invited her because we... I think what is really interesting about her research is that she's been one of the first persons in our community who's been publishing, who started publishing research about how to tell stories with with data through visualization. And she's been publishing uh, a number of very interesting papers on the topic and some of them even controversial. So I think it's going to be, we have lots of interesting uh, things to talk about during the show. So Jessica, you want to briefly introduce yourself, say what What's your background, what you do, and yeah, this kind of stuff? Sure, yeah. I'll try and keep it brief. Um, Yeah. So I'm currently a postdoc, like you said, at University of California, Berkeley. I'm supported here by Tableau Software. They're uh, funding my fellowship. I'm working with Manish Agrawala, who is in computer science here um, in the Visual Computing Lab. And so we're doing basically InfoViz, HCI-ish research. Um, So I... Prior to this, just recently, at the end of last year, I got my PhD from the University of Michigan. Um, I was at the School of Information there, and I worked with Eitan Adar. Um, And again, I was doing information visualization mostly, some HCI work. Uh, Prior to that, I have a master's um, in information retrieval and analysis, also from the University of Michigan. So I was there in total over six years doing those two degrees. Before that, it gets more interesting, perhaps. Uh, I actually have an MFA that I did right before I did the master's degree. Um, and that was actually in experimental writing uh, and poetics. Wow. So we like I, and my undergrad as well is um, kind of more of a humanities focus. It's actually comparative studies mm-hmm. in religion. Uh, but all throughout sort of college and even in high school, I was always kind of 
both into science, but also into art, especially into writing. And so, uh, so I kind of wrestled with both of those things throughout undergrad, was a, like a pre-med for a while, and then got this degree in comparative studies. Um, but after that, I still wanted to sort of fulfill this dream of getting an MFA to see if I could mm-hmm, become like mm-hmm. a writer. Um, so for that, I was in a small Buddhist university um, that has sort of a well-known kind of uh, experimental writing program <laughs> in Boulder, Colorado. So um, I did the MFA there, and it was great, uh, although I realized, I think, somewhere along the line that I just missed sort of the science and the analysis too much, uh, focusing only on sort of, you know, creating something that's, you know, totally artistic was just a little too subjective. So I did this sort of rapid 180 after that point that started kind of pushing me towards visualization. But I initially, when I left that school to go get my master's degree in information retrieval analysis, my original goal was actually to do NLP, so natural language processing, because I was really into writing. Um, I was really into sort of critical analysis of text also. So I was interested Mm -hmm. in like, whether we could create software to tell kind of things like um, who wrote certain texts. So sort of analyze a whole corpus uh, from different authors and do kind of discourse analysis. Um, so, I, so I went to get that degree, the, the master's, in order to like see whether this would work for me. Um, but it was during that degree that I kind of actually found that visualization just felt more right. So I found that NLP was still... I mean, it's still very confined within these limits of linguistics and then sort of statistics and probability. And I felt like when I found visualization, I took a class and just an information visualization and felt like there was a lot more room to sort of think about how people think in general and to potentially draw on other influences from more sort of outside disciplines. So I don't know, it just felt right. So I did that degree and then went right into the PhD. So. Mm-hmm. That, that's but, such an interesting background. Quite a journey, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah quite a journey. That's so interesting. Yeah. So, is there anything that comes from your training in in poetics that that you still hmm. use in your? So actually, work? I, I did a some lot kind of, of attitude. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things. It, it's it's sort of vague. I would say it's not like a direct influence. I mean. I was studying writing, so um, and that included critical writing. So I did, I actually did a lot of critical writing on kind of aesthetic theory. I was working with um, an art historian. I got kind of lucky. This sort of well-known art historian was at the school where I was getting my, my MFA, and I was able to sort of focus a lot on, on art history. And I actually got into sort of like analysis of narrative through imagery while I was doing that. So I think that definitely sort of set this seed in me where I was really interested in narratives that were conveyed visually. Um, But I would say, I mean, more in general, I think getting an MFA, you kind of learn how to sort of tap into your creativity when you need it, kind of. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. before I did that, like in undergrad, I hadn't really experienced that sort of learning how to manage and, you know, use your creativity to your best, to the best effect. Like when you need it, you can pull out some interesting idea and refine it. And so that helped. And then, I mean, more generally, just the critical writing, the practice, I I got good at writing quickly. So when I started to write conference papers, it was a little bit of a challenge because scientific writing is very different even from like critical, you know, (laughs) kind of aesthetic theory. Uh, But, but I think it still helped to to just have so much practice. So. So Have yeah, you ever heard of, of uh, I think there is a group that is called something like Visual Poetics or 
visualization poetics. Are you aware of that, Moritz? I think Jen Lowe is, is working on that. Um, I think it's a group in New York. Okay, could be. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. 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 We need to ask Jen. So we if, have to invite Jen. Yeah, we, uh, by the way, we have to invite her sometimes. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, so let, let's switch a little bit to, to what I was saying at the beginning. Ah, school of Poetic oh. Computation. School of Poetic Computation? Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's Zach yeah. Lieberman. He, he did a school and Jen was teaching there. I think that's it. Yeah, that, yeah. that's really cool. That's so what do nice. they teach them? Is it is it more art-driven or is it more science-driven? I think it's it? more art-driven, yeah. I guess. Yeah, it's like an experimental approach to computing and use computing in a poetic yeah. sense. Sense, yeah. And, and make like computer experiments that touch people or, you know, that play mm -hmm. with emotions and... Interesting. Yeah. Have you ever seen that? That uh, how is it called? Something, something like Google, Google Poetics, Google. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's, it's along these these lines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's totally cool. Yeah, I, I liked that project. Yeah, but there, I think there's a lot to discover in that space, and and also the language angle to data visualization is one that I'm I'm really interested in, and oh, yeah, and I think absolutely. from from many ends, everybody ends up there at some point. You know, to think about the language of of visualization, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, Jessica, how did you start doing research in in visualization? What what? How huh. did you start? Um, I mean, I I think all throughout school, like undergrad as well. I had I just like research. Like I like finding a problem and then working on it for a while, um, and like really thinking about it. So, I guess I just when I was getting the masters um, at University of Michigan. Uh, I don't know, I, I came in wanting to do research and I didn't do a ton of it as a master's student. I started to write papers. I actually, that's when I started to learn about like the InfoViz conference and stuff. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, and I think I tried to write a paper as a master's student, didn't get into InfoViz. It was, it was kind of about storytelling. It was actually, I think it involved like uh, Arnheim's work. I don't know if you know, uh, I forget his first name, Rudolf Arnheim. It's, um, he he talks a little bit about like, you know, how we, we see these kind of implied dynamics when we look at visual stuff, like we almost see it moving depending on how the strokes are. So, yeah. So I, I, I remember doing that. Um, and I, that was with someone who initially was my PhD advisor when I started. Um, and so, I don't know, it just felt natural. I guess I'd always liked sort of independent projects. And, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I think what is really interesting. So when when I look at at, at the at your publications, mm -hmm. uh, yesterday I was preparing for the show and I thought, well, I think the visualization community. I mean, the research visualization community has been focusing for a very long while, uh, for a very long time on more on the perceptual side of visualization, right? Mm -hmm. And even the kind of few guidelines or theories we have out there are mostly based on the low-level perception of visual variables and and stuff like that, right? But then when I look at your at your work, it 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 looks more like you started very early on looking at cognitive effects, right? Rather than starting from the perceptual side of things. I don't know if if you agree with me that yeah. You know, in a way, um, Yeah, I think it's that's a tricky question. So I agree that there's been a lot of focus in on perception in sort of the history of visualization research. Um, I think co like cognitive or cognition is a tricky word because what does that really mean? So I mean, I think a lot of my work I'm interested in where sort of perception 
and how we process information just sort of automatically um, as it comes in, you know, either visually or the order in which it comes in. I'm interested in where that begins to shape cognition or I mean, cognition, I guess, meaning sort of the actual interpretations we draw. So there's sort of these um, I, I guess. Yeah. Cognition is hard to define. If, if you mean like sort of conscious thinking about things, I think it's it's potentially uh, that's less where we're seeing this expansion in visualization. And it's more sort of where these kind of more automatic influences begin to shape interpretation. So it's this mm-hmm. like it's like the meeting point in my mind. But I mean, those words can mean a lot of things. So, I mean, what, what do you think cognition or cognitive is? When you, I don't when know. you well, ask that question. <laughs> it's hard to tell, but I think, I don't know, I think most of your work is, uh, if I interpret it correctly, is more about how people interpret or get a message out of visualization, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and at, at least for me, when I, when, I, when I saw for the first time the kind of papers that you were publishing in, at the VIS conference, I was really struck by this kind of new angle of, of visualization research. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, maybe it just was natural for you, but when I when I saw this kind of papers, I was actually surprised because I don't think that we had anything similar in the past 10 or 15 years, at least in our, in our small community. Huh. So, yeah, I could see, I mean, I think what I'm interested in, and maybe this unites a lot of my work, is sort of the mechanisms by which we arrive at an interpretation. So, like, what's happening in our head that that makes us believe one way or another when we see a visualization. And so I would say like some of the work I did on like the visualization rhetorics or storytelling was kind of about how these like strategies that designers use are sort of um, kind of tailored to, to make our brain work in certain ways to arrive at interpretations. Um, and some of the other stuff I've done as well, the visual difficulties I think is kind of about uh sort of how we think about stuff and how certain ways of thinking about things that we can't always control will have an effect on sort of what we learn. Um, mm-hmm. So in that case, it was um, like active processing. So if you can uh, present information in a way that people have no choice but to really engage with it and think about it, uh, yeah. they might learn more from the visualization uh, the storytelling stuff is more sort of use of um, different presentation strategies or they, they call them framing strategies in uh, like political uh, science and uh, communication. But it's it's basically you're you're presenting the information in a way that uh, things uh, attributes related to how it comes into the to the perceiver's head are going to um, lead them to a certain interpretation. So the order effects is a really simple example of that. If you present things in a certain order, we as humans have this tendency to prioritize certain pieces of information based on the order. So we often either prefer the first things we heard or the last things we heard. It depends on the context. But um, so the storytelling work, I, I felt, I guess, when I wrote that paper, I didn't expect it to really get published at all. Um, but I just felt like it was sort of this glaringly obvious thing that you know, visualizations were not just about this sort of like very careful, deliberate, deliberative thought, you know, where we're looking at the data and just sort of analyzing it. They're also about somebody trying to convey a message and the way that they convey that message interacting with these different, you know, tendencies or biases we have and all of that sort of feeding into the interpretation. Mm. 
Is there a connection to speech act theory in a sense that... Um, I don't know too much about speech act theory, so yeah. maybe you can <laughs> tell me. <laughs> me neither, but I, I was just reminded <laughs> of that because, I mean, linguistics has all these different fields. So you can look at the syntax, like how you can construct sentences, semantics, what mm -hmm. words mean, what words construction mm -hmm. means. But one part is also pragmatics, like how you use language, like what's the, the practical meaning mm -hmm. implied by you know you uh, can utter the same sentence in two different contexts and semantically it means the mm -hmm. same oh, yeah, but what yeah. you imply by saying it or by asking yeah no i definitely question, think there is you know yeah. that that makes it an act in the world and that makes an something yeah. of an intent and something that is being interpreted and yeah so i think there's of, yeah a lot of like conventions or expectations mm -hmm. that we don't think about so like I mean, when people see a certain type of visualization, how they've seen that visualization used in the past is going to, you know, impact perhaps what what kind of message they think they're going to get. I think actually Barbara Tversky and um, uh, her colleague Zach's, I can't remember his first name, did an interesting study um, that I think is a nice example of like convention or expectations. It's the one on uh, bars and line graphs. So if you show mm -hmm. someone a line graph, um, they think in terms of trends, uh, regardless okay. of whether the data is actually trend-based. If you show them a bar graph, they tend to think in, ter in terms of these discrete groups. And so you can show people, you know, discrete information, um, but they'll, if it's in a line graph, they'll, they'll want to interpret it as a trend. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think that kind of stuff is a big sort of overlooked thing in visualization. I guess I'm just really interested in sort of these expectations that are harder to always see, but that are having this big influence. Yeah. And I mean, designers work a lot with that, but they have a hard time formulating it. You know, it's more like mm -hmm. implicit knowledge and a certain yeah, gut, yeah. gut feeling you develop, but there's no no good formal theory, I think, of how that yeah. works. So, so it's great somebody's working on that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm I really intrigued that. by how designers do, like, you know, do what they do, like how they think about it. I think a lot of my work I've, Especially lately, I've done sort of more systemy stuff where I'm I'm trying to figure out what designers like what kind of rules they're using in the first place. Yeah. But it can be hard because it's I don't yeah. know. I need to perhaps do more more studies where I actually interview designers. But it's hard to get at what they're actually doing. Yeah, I don't know impossible. that they they yeah. could articulate <laughs> it. But yeah. yeah, this is what I often think about the fact that now we are at a stage of visualization development where finally we have so many interesting people out there who are doing visualization every day in practice, right? Lots of designers. Mm -hmm. And I'm surprised that there is not a lot of research that quote to quote takes advantage of, of this wealth of knowledge, right? Just going huh. there yeah. and trying to, uh, I don't know, kind of like this kind of even ethnographic studies where you sit mm -hmm. together with, with a bunch of designers and try to observe what they are doing and trying to understand, uh, I don't know, try to see if there is anything interesting there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even just a few years back, it was not possible because visualization was not as popular as it is now, right? Yeah. But right mm -hmm. now, I think there are so mm -hmm. many interesting people out there. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I, think, I haven't yeah. seen anything like that. We don't think perhaps enough about process, like mm. how... You know, oh, the absolutely, absolutely. With yeah. which a visualization is created. Um, I think a lot of the sort of early advice um, from Tufti and others was that, you know, like there's there's only really one way to show the data correctly. <laughs> right. And so you just, you find that. And it's, yeah, yeah. But I think there's actually more, there's a lot of decisions, I think, is my sense. Although 
I'm not really a designer, so it's... Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, you're touching upon a very interesting point because if I look at the way I develop my sense of what is a good visualization through the years, mm. I have been trained, I've been trained with... Um, this kind of toughest worldview, right? Mm -hmm. And in a way, through the last few years, I've been modifying this view to some extent. And uh, it's been a really interesting process, yeah. in a way even painful. <laughs> I mean, talking of Stephen Few, <laughs> we could talk about the, the visual difficulties paper because I think it's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. And it was recognized by Stephen Few as the result of ill-conceived and poorly conducted research. So that's that's quite an honor, I think. <laughs> so, Is it? I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> no, I think everybody should have been bashed by Stephen Few once in their career. I think it's yeah, it's an achievement probably. So, it's, so yeah. 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 Well, if you're not, somewhere. Yeah. If you don't have haters, I think my advisor told me this. If nobody hates what you're doing, you're not doing anything interesting. Right, so. right. So, um, can you tell us a bit about the, the paper, yeah, the, the, yeah, the study? Yeah, so that paper, uh, well, it, I was working with a cognitive psychologist who I worked with a lot during my PhD, Preeti Shah, and so I would say that she um, initially got me into thinking about see, sort of these different views of how we think with visualizations and um, even outside of visualization, how we think in general and what's conducive to thinking when we're trying to learn something. Um, and so I think, again, it was, I did those two papers the same year, the visualization rhetoric and this other one, but I think they both kind of felt like, well, this stuff needs to be said, you know, like it's, there's this whole other viewpoint and we, we, we shouldn't just ignore it um, in favor of sort of this like very minimalistic um, type of design. Uh, and so I think a lot of the evidence from other fields like uh, educational psych, for instance, um, that shows that when people um, sort of think more actively about information, make themselves predict things before they look at the answer, they actually learn it better, um, was so persuasive to me that it just seemed like uh, something that might apply to visualization. And so I started looking at visualization and seeing some examples. So examples with animation are an example um, where animation is not always, um, you know, as useful as we think. Although it's less work for us, um, we don't always learn things or remember things as well. And so uh, I, I don't know, I came up with some examples working with Preeti uh, that, that kind of reflect cases where you want someone to think a little harder because the sort of superficial interpretation is one less likely to be remembered because they haven't processed it as sort of actively or, or thought about it as deeply, but it's also potentially uh, misleading in some cases. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the paper was intended to be a bit of a, a polemic uh, to sort of, you know, raise this other view, but I think there's really a balance between sort of knowing when to make something easy to perceive a given pattern and knowing when to make someone think more deeply. Um, I think it also depends on things like individual differences. And so, I mean, we try to sort of go over these different factors um, in the paper. So who the person is, how much they like to be challenged are going to be important in determining how challenging to make your graph. But um, yeah, I think a, a lot of it, uh, difficulties, I'm not sure is, is the right word because I think people reacted sort of strongly to that word, perhaps. <laughs> um, 
just sort of engaging or sort of active processing with visualizations. Um, I think there's a clear link between active processing and memory. Um, so we, it sort of strengthens our, the connections uh, in our memory when we think about data sort of for longer or more deliberatively. So it's kind of strategies to get at that can be useful, but, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, yeah, I think it's, there's an interesting line of so research right now. So you mean it's right not necessarily it's, about more complexity, but more about you worked on acquiring insights for yourself rather than a lot consuming of it, yeah. like spoon-fed information? Is it like this? Yeah, yeah, I think that the sort of uh, the driving point of that argument is based on these examples where there's a little more work. And sometimes, sometimes it's sort of... Um, conscious work so sometimes it's because people they don't they don't understand the visualization at first perhaps the the design is some sort of fancy tree visualization and it's not immediately obvious what the point is so in some cases i think they might make an active decision to process it further but mm -hmm. in other cases it doesn't even have to be something that they're conscious of so uh, we cite a lot of research on uh, difficult to read fonts um, because it, it's a clear case where it's been shown that it's uh people think they're doing something more difficult. They don't necessarily try to think about it more than they would, uh, or try to think about it deeply, but the brain, because it sees that difficult to process like visual form actually, uh, flips into sort of a different mode. There's, mm -hmm. I don't it's know, you probably, the system one versus system two thinking, um, where we have, you know, two different ways to process information. I don't know that it's actually that clear. There's these two distinct mm. systems, but I think there's, you know, some visualizations tend to um, present information in, in a way that's designed to give us this immediate um, sort of perception. Uh, and I think I was just in the paper. We're just trying to say that that's not the only way. So yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> and <laughs> that's tied to memorability so. as well, right? Isn't it What's, tied to memorability? Maybe yeah, it is. Like, I think to have a unique yeah. experience, and you can tie information. To yeah, that so it's. Experience, so. I think the memorability stuff is really based on um, kind of like depth of processing. So if you get someone to think about it more deeply and more actively, where they actually they want to learn something like they they realize that there's a gap in their understanding and they need to fill that gap that typically i think makes the memory stronger it, it there the encoded or the the process by which you're encoding the information is more developed and somehow the memory sticks i'm definitely not an expert in memory but i i, I do know there's a tie between sort of depth of processing and then uh memory, both long-term memory, but also short-term memory. And so, I mean, I think things have been interesting in visualization where other people have also been looking at that, that memory piece. Um, uh, there's been some interesting work, like Scott Bateman's work back at Kai was kind of cool. Um, mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's tricky. I think memory is a, is a complicated thing, but I think there's also probably individual stuff there. Like how much do you care about the data? You know, yeah. if you really care about the, the content, you might remember it. Yeah. Surprise guess, is a factor too. I mean, it's, it's yeah, a bottomless pit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, whether you expected it or not. And I guess there are lots of individual differences as well, right? I think mm -hmm. this is another aspect that is not very much uh, studied so far in visualization, yeah, no, but definitely. I think it's, it's huge. Yeah, so they've studied it more in, I think, cognitive psych, like graph comprehension. But uh -huh. actually, I read your persuasion paper, um, uh -huh. the one that you're involved with, and I really liked that you guys... You, you talk about sort of the initial attitudes, I think. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. That people had and how that's an important factor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. So this, what this made you look at that? So, 
Sorry, say it again. What made you look at that in the first place? Did you just have a hunch that? Oh yeah, it's just that it's uh, it's uh, I think it's an interesting story. Uh, I think it it starts three or four years back. Mm-hmm. I was invited for a talk to uh, development agency in 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 uh, in Canada in Ottawa. Uh, I give this talk and in the middle of the, no, at the end of this talk, one guy raises his hands and says, can you persuade somebody with a chart? And I was like, oh man, <laughs> I don't know how to answer <laughs> to this question. And I, I was struck by, I mean, I mean, I don't know why I never thought about this question before. Huh. And I didn't, I didn't really have a, even a clue how to answer to this question. <laughs> and he said, look, that's the most interesting kind of question, the most interesting kind of information for me, because I'm confronted every day, almost every day with this problem. I have a boss. I have to convince him that what I'm presenting is important and real, and he has to take actions based on what I'm presenting, right? Mm-hmm. And then I came back home and I was like, oh my God, I should, <laughs> I should do something, right? So, and, and yeah, but then for several circumstances, I didn't have time or resources for doing research in this area. So I had it in the back of my mind for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, last year I decided that finally I had to do it. Yeah. But, so you guys, yeah. you did a study, right? Yeah, we did a so. study, but it's... Uh, yeah, man, it's been really, really hard. <laughs> huh. I don't want to do it again. It's been crazy. One but, year but try to summarize it. I think it's it's kind of interesting. Oh, yeah. Well, that's not my interview, but... <laughs> yeah. um, you get three minutes, it's fine. Yeah, let, let's get three minutes. Um, so I think we just... I think our research was mainly about... I think we really started with uh, the idea of can can we even study persuasion with charts or not right because it's not clear how to set up a study to mm. to study this aspect it's really mm-hmm. really hard much much harder than i expected so basically mm-hmm. what we did is we created a several stories and then we present the stories either with charts or tables and then we see how the attitude of the participants change and then we compare how much or to what direction it changes with charts and how much it changes with tables. Uh-huh. And after several same iterations... Same information though, right? S- exactly the same similar. story, exactly same data. Yeah, we had to control for a lot of different right, things. Right. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be tedious, but so we had to control. We had, we actually had to run a lot of test studies, pilot studies to understand whether we were doing things right or not. Mm-hmm. And what is interesting is that we found that it looks like that the effect depends on the initial attitude of the participants. Huh, okay, yeah. So if the participant is in favor of the argument that you are proposing, charts uh, can make people more persuaded. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. But uh, this is what our data says. <laughs> then, uh, of course, you have to double check, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, But if the participant is against the argument that you are proposing, it looks like that the participant is more persuaded when he is he or she is persuaded by tables than charts, mm-hmm. and we don't mm-hmm. have very good explanations for because that. numbers don't lie. Because numbers don't lie, yeah. and then we also have some kind of analysis of a series of open-ended questions that we asked. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's an interesting part that is more qualitative and describes why people do or do not change their their attitude. Yeah, and they okay. have all sorts of all sorts of uh, explanations, and some yeah, people are yeah, quite like clever, this. actually. So this <laughs> is one thing that is it's really important to say. I think that we believe we tend to consider most people 
quite um, not very knowledgeable mm-hmm. and not not able to distinguish to discern between uh, a good or bad chart, or mm. good statistics, mm-hmm. good numbers. But I think it's not as um, evident as we as we think it is. No, yeah. Because we in our study we got a lot of people who actually wrote a lot of clever sentences explaining precisely why mm-hmm. our argument couldn't wasn't actually a good argument for <laughs> our data wasn't enough or our statistics were not uh, were not supporting our arguments. So that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. I think I'd heard something before about if people, if someone doesn't agree with an issue or a, a, an argument, that presenting it actually makes them agree even less. Like it, yeah. it makes them present or that it makes them sort of reinforce this counter argument in their head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's really interesting. No, but if it, you look into the persuasion literature, uh-huh. it's crazy. I mean, it's. It's a can of worm. <laughs> so there's, it, it, so you were going after kind of persuasion, like an actual. Is it is it like sort of subjective topics that you're going after, or subjective arguments, or yeah, 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 okay. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's been a little work in um, just how does like when the when the data is correct and people are less likely to argue with that. Like, how does showing it in a graph change? you know, versus change people's uh, use of the data over showing it in a table. And I think there they found some interesting stuff. It's kind of like uh, things like graphs do make data more salient. Like there's more differences that that pop out at us based on the size and the shape of the visual stuff that we just don't see in words or tables. Um, But that I, I think one of the studies actually showed too, though, that people they don't always remember the specific numbers as well when they see it in a graph. Mm-hmm. They remember it there. It's like more of an effective response. Um, yeah. So maybe you like riled people up even more by showing them persuasive <laughs> visualizations that, that had some argument they disagreed with. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. a really interesting question. Um, and it's complex. Unfortunately, it's very complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have to rely on people self-reporting that they changed exactly. their mind. And I mean, that's oh, the yeah. big... Yeah. Man, that's such a yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is shaky. It's hard. Yeah. Did you do yeah. this on Mechanical Turk? This yes. Study or? Okay. But what is? I think what convinced us that this was, let's say, publishable at least, is that we repeated exactly the same thing with mm-hmm. three different stories oh, yeah. without reusing the same the same participants, oh, okay. mm-hmm. and the trends are very similar. That's good. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that that was really surprising, actually. Yeah. I do. I, I like what you said about um, sometimes we think people don't really think very hard about charts, so they don't understand what we're. I showing think we them. underestimate people in general. I definitely agree. <laughs> we underestimate yeah. the layman. <laughs> definitely, yeah. I think um, that's actually. I, I think even Daniel Kahneman, who did a lot of the like cognitive biases stuff, like a lot of that literature is showing like people are flawed in how they reason about information. They're not sort of perfect Bayesians or whatever, but. Yeah. He wrote a book, uh, the the Thinking Fast and Slow book. I don't know if you know that one. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think he says somewhere in there that like a lot of his later work has actually been trying to convince people that like even though we have these like natural tendencies and they're not always perfect, they're actually kind of sophisticated. Like all these these heuristics that we use yeah. um, and our ability to sort of like actually use them in a way that works for us and, you know, helps us process information so that we can at least make the decisions we need is, is something that we should not, you know, that we should be appreciative of. It's, there's some sophisticated stuff going on kind of. So 
Um, but I feel that way a lot. I think when I, I do a lot of research where I'm trying to like understand how people who are not necessarily statisticians use charts. And yeah. I've been doing a lot of studies on Mechanical Turk. I've always sort of used that as kind of a proxy, um, uh-huh. which I mean, it definitely has its downfalls. And yeah, it's kind of tricky at times. But I think uh, it's been really useful at sort of convincing me as well that you know, even people who haven't taken a lot of statistics or use, you have used graphs much, like they're, they're capable of reasoning in a very <laughs> rational way. And uh, yeah. we do underestimate, I think, just sort of the general population sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So you've been doing some work on understanding how people uh, look at um, samples or uncertainty. Yeah, so Can uncertainty. you tell us a little, yeah. a little bit about actually, that? I think it's really interesting. Yeah, what it's something doing. I've been interested in for a while. Um, it's uh, work I started with my advisor when I was getting my PhD, Eitan Adar, um, and we were talking about this idea that uh, if you could show people sort of actual samples of what could happen if you repeated this process that produced your data, maybe then they would understand the potential for variance or the potential that a pattern that they see in the in the original sample doesn't necessarily persist if you repeat the data. So I guess, I mean, it's kind of based on this view of uncertainty as sort of a need to understand that other outcomes are possible. So mm-hmm. um, we could argue about that definition of uncertainty or not, but I think it's reasonable that we're trying to show people the potential for variance. And so um, I... We, we started thinking about this idea of just show them directly the hypothetical samples. So there's ways you can resample your data to produce a, a, additional samples that sort of represent hypothetical outcomes. So um, there, there's like bootstrapping and statistics uh, and then other forms of resampling, depending on what kind of data you have that can help you produce sort of an equivalent data set that might have resulted from the same process that produced your original sample. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's something that you could apply to any sort of data. And where it's helpful, I think, is that a lot of the um, sort of conventional ways of Visualizing uncertainty are, for the one part, kind of framed for particular visualizations. So error bars are something we see a lot, but they're really made for bar charts. Sometimes you can use them on like scatter plots, but or line charts. But it's they have sort of a small number of formats, and so there's this problem like how do we show uncertainty when we have something much more complicated, like a network diagram or um, you know some mm. complicated maps. And so one nice thing about showing it as these these hypothetical samples where you show someone a set of them, maybe you show them small multiples or an animation, is that you can actually do it for any type of chart. Um, But the other big problem, I think, with some of the conventional uncertainty representations is that uh, for things like error bars that are showing a confidence interval, you kind of have to understand the statistics behind it. So to understand an error bar and to like compare two different error bars, you have to know what that interval actually means and what does it mean when your error bars overlap. And there's actually some studies I found that, um, that, you know, people, even who are experts who are using error bars all the time, <laughs> they don't quite understand like the, the concept of uh, statistically different and how you get that um, from error bars. And uh, so I think what we found, it's been really tricky uh, uh, doing studies with these comparative sample plots. Um, and what we're doing, like I said, is like small multiples. Like we either create a whole bunch of samples, like hypothetical samples, and we show you like 16 or 20 of them, or we show you an animation that's actually, it's playing mm-hmm. through all these hypothetical samples. So it's like you could have a bar chart and the bar chart's actually sort of animated from one frame to the next, you're seeing a new sample. Um, but it's been sort of tricky in that we've been showing people these things, 
on the one hand, they're a little bit harder to process um, compared to like a, a bar chart with two bars and error bars on each bar, because you're getting more information, you're getting all of these samples. But on the other hand, the, the fact that they're less abstract, that you don't have to like understand the error bar thing, appears to work. Like we've, we've found that they're actually more effective for helping people estimate uh, the probability that a pattern that they see is gonna repeat. Um, compared to error bars. So it's it's giving you directly all the information you need to calculate, like, you know, if I had more samples, how many times would I see that A is greater than B, sort of. So uh, so for that kind of, like, assessing the, the probability of patterns, it appears that they really work. Um, so I don't know. I find it exciting, the, the whole idea of it, just because it, you can apply it in many cases. But there are, I mean, it's... It's tricky because it's a little more difficult for people, I think. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, there's like this initial like, oh, it's the chart is moving, you know, for these animations. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I can't do this. Or but, like, which one is it now? You know, you show me 10 yeah, different charts, yeah. like which one is yeah, it? And, so, yeah, yeah. Um, but Did you know New York Times did something like that? Like, um, huh. They had an article on how the soccer World Cup, how the groups are drawn. So uh -huh, there's a certain okay. mechanism how the groups are formed, like uh -huh. based on the strength of the teams. And they made an argument that the mechanism is sort of flawed and leads to very mm -hmm. skewed oh, group okay, strength. Cool, yeah. So you often end up with a very strong group and uh -huh. a few weaker ones. And yeah. they, they showed first the histograms and the distributions and the model aspect of it. But mm -hmm. then there was also a button and you could sort of simulate a draw based yeah, on yeah. the old scheme or the one they proposed. And you would see immediately, yeah, hold on, the right-hand side always looks better, you know? So you, yeah, get, this, no, you get this gut feeling of, yeah, it seems to work. And yeah. then you go into the math, and and that's I thought it was really nicely done. And you yeah. could just press reshuffle or redraw, and it would uh -huh. simulate a new run. Yeah, and I think it, it kind of goes successful. back to to that yeah. thing on process. Like we don't always think about the process of creating visualizations and like mm -hmm. the potential for error or noise. Like when you're actually collecting the data. Um, or when you're graphing the data, that the fact that there's there's a little bit of noise or variance, and so what we actually see in the end isn't necessarily the absolute truth. Like I don't think people think about that when they see a visualization. I think yeah, yeah. you know they think this is this is fact or whatever. And so anything you can do to kind of get people to think, oh, other things could happen, mm. is potentially yeah, that, that that's so important. And so. Going back to the to the New York Times example, I think I, I really really loved that 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 piece because when I saw it, I was really, I mean, what really surprises me about about this New York Times piece is that they they had the gut to to do something so. Um, nerdy. You know, yes, yeah, so nerdy, right? I mean, if yeah, you look is. at the details, it's, 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 I mean, the statistics is not, is not obvious, right? Uh -huh. And I would be totally scared to expose these kind of things to a large, large audience. And they did it and they did it in a very beautiful way. I mean, it's, it's really, really, really nice. And I think this is another interesting trend that I think it's, uh, where I think visualization as a whole, I think that there is a, I have a hunch that there is a much larger segment of the population right now that are exposed to numbers and statistics mm -hmm. oh, in yeah. general. And I guess that this is actually leading to people being much less afraid mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. <laughs> of numbers yeah. and, and stats. Yeah, and we need to work on like educating people to work with models and understanding predictions. Yeah, I think, you know, totally. when you talk about climate debates or... Economy. I mean, anything, you know, we're always surrounded with these uh, predictions and, uh, yep. and, and it's, if you're not a scientist, it's very 
even if you're a scientist, let's face it, it's, it's very hard to make sense <laughs> yeah. out of that. Yeah. No, I right. totally yeah, agree. There's always like assumptions built into models and we so right. rarely see those. Um, even like I was thinking about things like averages, like we see averages all the time. And I think yeah. people mm-hmm. probably have a good idea of like the need to average rather than take like a single example. But I wonder sometimes like do... Like, is it always clear, you know, like how you can get a very different average depending on, you know, what your data actually looks like? Like you could have outliers that are totally skewing something Mm. like, I mean, I think people are capable of thinking through these things, but we don't always, you know, have know enough about how to to sort of, you know, cue them to start thinking in the first place. Like. So I, the, the New York yeah, Times sounds that cool. Yeah, that an average of averages is, is usually not a good idea. That's also something <laughs> people are usually not familiar with until they ran into uh, that issue. Uh, and, you know, yeah. that sounds plausible, but, yeah. 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 So maybe visualizations need to do more teaching, like, along the way or something. I don't yeah. know. I'm going to have to check out this New York Times one because <laughs> it sounds yeah, cool. It's, it's, it's a really good. cool it's one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think this is this also nicely introduces the problem of visualization literacy or even mm-hmm. statistical literacy in general yeah. i think that's a really really interesting aspect and um and so again that's, that's I, something you've also been doing a little work on right <laughs> <laughs> yeah but we shouldn't talk about my work <laughs> you're, you're always Fair pushing enough. for opportunities to present your work <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree with well i'm prompting so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i propose your work well i have been working on <laughs> Can I ask something about Jessica? You have an upcoming mm-hmm. paper on content, context, and critique. Oh, okay, yes. Commenting on a data visualization blog. I'm that's really actually, that kind of ties with the visualization literacy thing. So that's yeah. um, that's actually just a sort of qualitative study that I did with Nick Dicopoulos um, and also Lehe Momeni Rucci and Eitana Darin. So um, we were interested in this Economist data blog. So the Economist, the magazine has a website and they have this particular um you know, like blog that's called Daily Charts and it, or I think Graphic Detail, they've changed the name, but it's uh, every day they, or not every day, every working day they present a visualization and then they get tons of comments on the visualization. The visualization is always something related to economics. Um, uh, and so we started what looking at... the blog at, called again? Can you say it again? Uh, What's the name of the blog? It's called... I'm trying to think of, it's called Graphic Detail. They changed the name from Daily Chart to Graphic Detail. But one thing that we noticed, uh, me and Nick in particular, were kind of really interested in the discussions going on there because it, um, like a lot of times you think about visualization and commenting on visualization and it hasn't always been successful. So, um, you know, you get a lot of comments that are just like, oh, wow, this is really cool um, on, on some visualizations, uh, like uh, many eyes would be an example. Um, that site, I think, was originally intended to, to get all these comments and you don't really see a ton. But this this economist blog was interesting to us because it had so many comments and so many of them were really kind of astute, like they'll go into like the the sort of details of a certain type of map projection and whether or not it was actually a good idea to use that. So it's really getting critical about like the process. And so we did this qualitative study originally just trying to get at sort of um, how does commenting on a visualization differ outside of these sort of research systems? Because a lot of the commenting platforms uh, like Census or Many Eyes have been kind of coming out of research um, and they're sort of prototypes. And so... It was really interesting because it 
I mean, it convinced me that there's, you know, some very like highly data literate people out there who, you know, may not even be working with data every day, but, you know, they're, they like to reason about it. And when you put a graph in front of them, they want to go deeper and really think about how it was made and what sort of assumptions go into it. And so um, the paper is just kind of, you know, about that, that people like to critique decisions made in the process of creating a visualization. They like to focus on the content. But uh, I guess the other thing that we found was that the context, so all of the sort of uh, other pieces of related information that actually aren't shown in that data visualization, but that that might be important to understanding it are are things that people are aware of and they're thinking about when they look at a chart. So sort of the whole backstory, all the causes, all these things that you don't actually see in the chart, but might be important. So, so how did you go about, did you sort of classify the comments into different yeah. groups or yeah, yeah. Like that. sort of a grounded theory. Um, <laughs> Nick Dacopoulos is actually sort of good with his qualitative <laughs> methods. So I'll give him credit for, uh, for sort of teaching me we how to do that. invite Nick sometimes. <laughs> yeah, <here>. totally. But, <laughs> but yeah, so I think it, I mean, it's sort of related to literacy in that I, I think I agree with what you, you just said, Enrico, that, um, you know, people are becoming more literate, especially with data. They're they're learning how to think yeah. about data to critique data. Yeah. But yeah, I think there's still a long way to go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't have a way to demonstrate that, but I think the biggest difference is that now this stuff all in a sudden is cool, right? And it used to mm-hmm. be exactly the opposite, right? Totally uncool. Yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting difference. I'm really curious to see how my kids are going to see this kind of stuff huh, <laughs> when they yeah. grow up, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe they will think that their dad do some cool stuff yeah. <laughs> rather than boring. I don't know. <laughs> weird. There's like this nerd culture that's taking mm-hmm. over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's really weird. And um, But it's interesting stuff. I mean... Like, it is. It is. Like thinking about data, I think people once they learn more about it, like it's really interesting to think about statistics. Like, maybe yeah, not for everybody, but I think a lot of people can like sort of get into it. Yeah, and, and what is really interesting for me is that it's very interdisciplinary, right? There's mm-hmm. no single angle that is going to work for everything, right? Yeah. So you have people coming from so many different areas, and you need all of them in order to do to to make progress, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have computer scientists, you have designers, you have statisticians and and so on, geographers, whatever, right? Mm, And that's that's really interesting. So is that data science then, what you're describing? Would you say that? Sorry? Would you say that's what data science is? Uh, No. Like people use that term a lot. (laughs) Well, of course, I mean, we could talk for hours about what data science is or is not, but I think for me, data science is more... uh, I don't know. We don't want to go there. <laughs> yeah, okay. I've been asked that question. Yeah, it's a hard question. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't yeah. know. But I agree. I mean, I think more people realize. I think it has to do about also about control, like this whole thing of program or be programmed. Like, I think more and more people realize you need yeah. some technical skills just not to be, you know, to be an actor actually, and and yeah. take control of your environment. And otherwise, it's very always like empowering. Be, be, be part of somebody else's program and yeah. I think more and more people realize that which is great. Oh. Yeah, no, I think it's like I, I learned to code pretty late. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I mean, I had done all these other things, but it it's definitely empowering, I think. And statistics are empowering. Like the more you can understand, uh, not that I understand a ton, <laughs> but like it's <laughs> the, the more you understand, at least the, the closer you get to just feeling like, okay, I really know what's going on. So I, I think people sense that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I'm curious to hear how you learned how to code because lots of our listeners, I mean, this, this is the typical question that we get for people who start doing this and they ask, first of all, if they, in order to do this, you need to code. And I tend to say kind of yes. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> sort of, I mean, yeah. sort of, right? I mean, of course you For can... For the most part, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think you I can agree. use Tableau, no. you can use Excel, you can use a lot of stuff, but if you code, it's much better. Yeah, right? ultimately, I think you have to control it. Like, I mean, there's so many sort of rules built into any system that's going to allow you to avoid coding that, you know, like, unless you want to be subject to somebody else's constraints, you have yeah, to be able to right. create things yourself. Um, that's the only way you're going to get the control, but... I mean, for me, learning how to code, and I'm not a great coder, was just, uh, (laughs) it started, like, I started trying to teach myself, but I would say, um, as I was finishing this MFA, so it was, like, really weird, uh, sort of had my foot in two worlds, but I would say I really started to get better just by throwing myself into this, you know, information retrieval analysis master's program and taking a bunch of classes, (laughs) like, my first semester, like NLP, that just like I had no choice. I had to like learn really that's quick. That's pretty technical at least how to stuff, by. right? Like vector spaces. <laughs> that stuff, yeah. And, and like, I, I'm not going to say yeah. I understood it all, but uh, I don't know. I mean, it just I wanted the challenge. I guess I'd always liked math and science, though. Like that was always something that like I really liked and I did well at. So it was, I, I don't know. It felt like sort of trying to refine that. You know, like I, I really liked statistics in undergrad. I remember loving the two statistics classes I took. And so I started when I was trying to code, just kind of trying to think about other things like that. You know, it's all like the, I guess the left side of the brain, they say. <laughs> I don't know if it is or not, but sort of just, I think all those things go together and you just, it takes a while, but you, you start gradually immersing yourself in so in that kind yeah. of thing. But yeah, I don't really have any good advice for people learning how to code other than <laughs> No, but I think that for, for a very long time, I think when we say learning how to code, this can mean so many different things, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that for, for a long time, people saw coding equated being able to code to being a good software engineer, which is totally different, right? Mm-hmm. One thing yeah. is to be able to do some coding and one thing is to be a, a solid software engineer there is a huge difference between these two things and guess what in order to do some some nice this not necessarily you have to be a very good software engineer i guess yeah no definitely and yeah if you are it's better but if you're not you can still do a lot of good things no definitely i think it's more just kind of understanding how to think like a computer and stuff and that's probably the hardest part of coding i mean for me it was just you know, you learn how to debug and stuff. And until you get that, you're kind of struggling. But I don't know. I mean, it's it's possible, I think, for anybody. Like, you just I've have been to... skating by 10 years and nobody noticed. So. But you? Who? <laughs> I've been skating by for 10 years now and nobody noticed. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. But I don't know why. I mean, uh, I get this question very often because people are scared. and um, mm-hmm. And I also think there has never been... It's never been so easy. Like, I mean, right now there are so many resources out there and starting to go, it's never been so easy as it is now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You can just grab a bunch of, uh, I don't know, Coursera courses. Oh, maybe. yeah, that, that has changed a lot too. Yeah. That has changed a think, lot. Yeah. So, uh, Jessica, um, mm-hmm. so what do you think is coming up next in this, in this area? I mean, storytelling oh. has exploded as one, I mean, people are 
crazy about visual storytelling. Except me. (laughs) 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 No, that that goes back a bit, but we had a long debate and I'm not fond of the term. Yeah, no, I don't think any of us are fond of the term, probably. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. A few episodes back, we had uh, Alberto Cairo and um, Robert Cosara here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I listened to parts of that one, yeah. Yeah, but I think what is really interesting for me is what do you think are the most interesting lines of research for the future? What, what hmm. I mean, the best possible world in a few years, what, what would you like, what kind of research would you like to, to see there, right? Hmm, yeah, I think, um, well, it's going to be very biased based on what I think is interesting. Yeah, but, sure, of course. Um, I think a lot of the stuff related to sort of how these different kind of heuristics and cognitive biases uh, or just shortcuts that we use. Um, I think there's so much that we know from sort of the decision science literature about how they operate when we're presented with information that's not visual. But I think there's still a ton of work to do to figure out, like, how do things change when you have a visualization? Do they mm-hmm. change at all? So um, I, I think there's uh, there's a lot of ways in which when we have to make a decision, we, we look for other information when we don't quite know how to make it. And I think there's questions about how visual information might uh, be used to sort of, you know, make decisions about things like uncertainty uh, without actually having the uncertainty information there. So I guess, mm-hmm. I mean, one thing that I think going forward is just people, I, I think, will begin to sort of explore these these individual kind of shortcuts that people use when they're reasoning about data and try to kind of develop uh, just an understanding of how to design visualizations in a way that accounts for those or expects those different mm-hmm. shortcuts even more. Um, I guess the, the stuff I did on order effects is kind of in that vein. So um, mm-hmm. I think so other stuff going forward. I mean, there's so much. I think there's a lot of cool tools that are being developed for uh, creating storytelling visualizations, if you will. Um, so I think You've been creating some, right? We didn't oh, talk about Oh, I wasn't talking about mine, but yeah, <laughs> we can but, talk Yeah, but those. I think you um, developed like a couple of so my stuff, yeah, nice I guess tools. my stuff is uh, the stuff I've done in sort of automated visualization generation has really been about kind of looking at uh, visualization and, and context. So the the, the other information um, that, that often is presented with the visualization, uh, and specifically I've been looking at visualizations in news media and how often you have an article and a visualization and they sort of play off each other. Um, the, the visualization helps you understand the article. The article helps you figure out where to look in the visualization. And so um, I've done a few systems that are really about sort of um, looking at this problem where we have so many uh, sort of text articles, like news articles, um, and many of them are somehow related to data. Um, you know, they're about some disease that's some you know that's spreading across the U.S., et cetera. But there's not always a designer at, uh, right there at hand to make a visualization. So we've done some some systems to try to uh, figure out ways to take a news article and automatically find data that's appropriate and present the data in a way that's appropriate um, to the sort of comparisons that you would want to do between the data based on the Mm -hmm. the text of the article. Um, But when I brought up sort of uh, systems for visual storytelling, I was also thinking of things like um, uh, some of the work, I think Jeff Harris had a few systems like Lyra um, that some Mm -hmm. of uh, his colleagues have been working on that are kind of designed to help people uh, create sort of visual stories more easily. Um, I think there's probably still a lot to do there. Um, some of the, the, the stuff going on at Tableau, I think, is getting into sort of how to help people 
do things like annotate visualizations, use these sort of basic devices in a way that's just easier uh, than it currently is. Um, so I think that's uh, potentially something we'll see more of. Um, yeah, that's, there's so much, yeah, that, I guess. That, 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 that's interesting because I think we've been focusing, of course, we, we've been focusing so much on the charts, but mm -hmm. con the context plays such a big role mm -hmm. on how you oh, interpret yeah. the chart, right? Yeah. And uh, studying charts in isolation without putting them back into the their own context mm -hmm, I think it's a it's a it's a it's a problem right yeah and sometimes I even wonder so one kind of thing that I would love to see is if I give an article to a person and in the middle of this article there is one single chart how many of them look at the chart at all right, right, right. or how many times do they go back and forth from the chart back to the text and mm -hmm. so on right I have no idea how, yeah. how this, this works yeah no I and think that's a really that's actually a really interesting area uh, is yeah, how we move between different pieces of information or different types of media when we're looking at a visualization. So, like, I think I could definitely see a lot more being done in that area. Like, how does text go with the visualization? Like, what exactly is the interaction between those things? And is it different for different people? Uh -huh, uh -huh. If I remember correctly, do you mention some of these things in your uh, visualization rhetoric paper where you try to look more at what kind of we the talk, framing effects? Yeah, we actually, we uh, we do focus more on the visualization there though. Like we, okay. we do an analysis of a big group of uh, storytelling or narrative visualizations, but we're really focusing on the visualization um, and less on the text if there's an article that goes with okay. it. We look at text such as... Um, like the, the titles of the graphs we found, oh, a lot yeah, of them were yeah, suggestive. Yeah, yeah. You'll get like a rhetorical yeah. question as the title, which like as soon as you see the visualization, it's, you know, getting you to think sort of sarcastically about, you know, something that's supposed to be true, but isn't actually true based on the data. So uh, that's where we kind of, I mean, that's the sort of text that we look at. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think the, the stuff I'd recently looked at with Nick Dicopoulos on The Economist gets a little more at um, how there's an article and there's a visualization. Sometimes there's also tables and people, when they're trying to sort of reason about the information, are moving from one to the other and focusing on specific parts of, you know, these different representations and trying to bring them all together in an interpretation. So I, I think, yeah. yeah, we don't think enough about that at all in visualization. <laughs> so. Good. Um, I think we should wrap it up. We've, we've been talking for almost one hour now. Okay. <laughs> um, thanks a lot, Jessica. It's Thank been you. great. It's, yeah, no, it's the, been the, fun for me. I've never been on like a, a radio interview. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, first. It's only no. internet, no worries. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe radio will be next. Yeah. Well, thank so you no, very you, much for inviting me. It was great yeah, to talk to you guys. Yeah, super interesting. I think you bring a really fresh perspective. Oh, I, I, I really like that. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, cool. thanks a lot, Jessica. All right, cool. yeah. Talk bye. to you guys later. Thanks. Bye-bye.